This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing the film There Will Be Blood on the theme Hustlers. Helen, kick us off. Okay, I, um, I'm going to look at the sort of religious element of the film and the religious element of capitalism. It came up a theme, I think, last episode or the episode before, and I kind of wanted to sort of like distinguish maybe this uh, theological reading of capitalism from like more trad reemergences of religious phenomena today, if that makes sense. So, as Zizek says, Dostoevsky is wrong when he claims that when God is dead, everything is permitted. Dostoevsky is wrong for two reasons. Firstly, because it is really when we believe in the possibility of transcendence, either in heaven or just over the horizon here on earth, that we permit the most egregious acts of horror, destruction and exploitation. We might, for example, steal a child and use him as a moral prop when manipulating a homesteader into giving us his land for far less than it's worth. We might abandon a child when, when the disability generated by our own toxic pursuit of capital is getting in the way of that very pursuit. The second reason is more subtle. As Zizek says, in a dialectical sense, when God is dead, really nothing is permitted. In our atheistic age, we are more ascetic than ever, harder working, more determined to succeed, to abide by the most demanding moral values, to accumulate, to eat more cleanly, to heed the constant demand to enjoy without the element that makes it enjoyable, only fans of sex without subjectivity, coke without sugar, coffee without caffeine, and be happy and exercise and to tell everyone on social media just how grateful we are for our Lord. The problem is that when God dies, he doesn't disappear. God, in the word of Lacan, words of Lacan, is unconscious. For the Jewish mystic, God exists as a transcendent reality out in the world. As long as one adheres to certain co covenantal rituals, he doesn't impinge on one's life. One can leave God in silence. The Christian mystic, pre-modern, before Hegel, never stops speaking of God because God is a transcendent reality in the heart of one's subjectivity and the world. In atheistic humanism, as Nietzsche points out, God dies as a transcendent source in the world, but remains alive in the unconscious as an undivided promise. Daniel the Hustler sniggers at the believing Eli. He plays along with the preacher's dramatic exorcism, swaggering with the knowledge that he knows something that everyone he exploits doesn't, that everything is meaningless, that there is no heaven, that there is no God, that all there is is territory to be bought up and money to be made. The problem is that Daniel doesn't know that as a capitalist, he is really a secular believer, as religious as any confessional zealot. Daniel's problem is that he is not Christian enough, or at least that he is not Christian in the religionless Hegelian sense of the word. Capitalism is the religion of our age. It is a belief in the transcendent embodied in the commodity form. To believe in the transcendent is to believe in the logical possibility of wholeness and completeness, something that can only be granted by a being that is himself whole and complete. In the film, Eli prays to a god in heaven. Daniel's god has descended to earth but he is not a God dwelling in the here and now. He is a God that is always there just over the horizon in little Boston or in Los Angeles or at the edge of the Atlantic Ocean or under the barren land of whichever gormless farmer he decides to swindle next. Various economists have identified the spiritual dimension of capitalism, our pious faith in the undivided promise of the commodity form. Adam Smith called it the invisible hand. For Keynes, it was animal spirits. When animal spirits are low, participants have lost faith in the transcendent powers of the market. They have been confronted with the commodity's impotence. For Keynes, of course, as a capitalist, this was a bad thing, a moment of crisis. Unfortunately for us, it is this perpetual crisis that guarantees capitalism's continued grip. Capitalism's impotence generates its very intractability. It is fueled by failure, thrusting us ever towards Hegel's bad infinite. 
The commodity promises transcendence, but it never grants it. Daniel is wealthy, inordinately so. He has more money than he can spend in several lifetimes. A mansion with all the latest appliances and accoutrements. He has servants and power, and yet he is miserable. He is constantly confronted by the impotence of his capital. It cannot fill his lack. It cannot quell his anger and anxiety. He is never satisfied, and yet he still believes. Religion operates on the logic that a broken present can be replaced by a utopia granted by an undivided being. This utopia can be in heaven or sometime in the future here on earth. The intractability of confessional religion relies on the fact that it's difficult to disprove that heaven exists after death. The intractability of capitalism relies on the fact that the utopia never comes. If it were ever granted, our religion would end. There would be no need for our faith in believing. If capitalism were as efficient and constructive as our, as ideology convinces us that it is, capitalism would self-destruct precisely because in its success is its failure. The impotence of the fantasy would be revealed. God is the undivided being that can reward us with transcendence, if only we heed his command. Capitalism is the repression of the Christian insight that God has definitively died. It is the material denial of the divided other, the material denial of the non-existence of God. The problem is, as Nietzsche understood, God insists. When you rid the world of God as an external other, you are left with an even more insistent, internalized God. Daniel's God is like Frankenstein's revived corpse. In our age of green and inclusive capitalism, our God is even more repressed, more spiritual. A phantom, the religion of post-religion that just won't rest in peace. If only we can please our God in the right way, if we can make the right products or stop consuming fish or educate ourselves enough or moralize correctly or twiddle with interest rates in the right way, our God will usher in a utopia of cosmic balance here on earth. But capitalism is born out of contradiction. It's an outgrowth of our distorted subjectivity, alienated from nature. It is precisely divided. It is not the work of gods. Nothing is. But it's not enough for us to know this. We cannot acknowledge the truth because it is too traumatic. We live in a divided world, not watched over by an undivided God, but we repress this truth. We render our God unconscious. It is to Daniel, not Eli, that Nietzsche speaks in The Gay Science when he says that after the Buddha died, a shadow of the Buddha existed on the cave wall for a thousand years. It is the so-called enlightened people in the marketplace that Nietzsche's madman cries, God is dead and we have killed him. The enlightened, the rational, atheistic, progressive capitalism has not heard these words at the level of his own bro broken subjectivity, but the Hegelian Jesus knew it. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The madman cries, abandoned by his God to die on the cross. The genealogy of Jesus's religion, religion, a Christianity of the divided God of contradiction, starts with Paul before even the gospels were written. The insight of the death of God is risen to the level of theology with Luther, then to the status of philosophy with Hegel, then turned into an existential event with Nietzsche, and finally into a technology and practice with psychoanalysis. Hegel shows us that God dies after the Enlightenment. Nietzsche tells us that we're free from this realization. The 20th century is characterized by the denial of the death of God. Psychoanalysis helps us to confront the trauma that leads to this denial. Hegel tells us that through absolute knowledge, everything is divided, even the absolute. There is no God, there is no big other. This is the beginning of modernity, a place from which modern politics can evolve. The end of history is the insight of intractable division embodied in the state. Hegel's monarchy is an example of the contradiction between an immensely powerful and utterly impotent force whose only role is to countersign the will of the people. But as Nietzsche and psychoanalysis show us, intellectual insight is not enough. For Nietzsche, the death of God is a point at which we recognize that there is no guarantor of meaning. But what comes after that, as he shows in the gay science, is that modernity is characterized by a denial of this end of history. The Buddha dies, but his shadow is cast for a thousand years. Psychoanalysis must come after Hegel and Nietzsche. It is the process through engaging with our unconscious that allows us to see that as capitalist subjects, our God remains. 
We might be good rational atheists, but we deny what we know. We flee from our freedom. This is what capitalism is, the shadow of God. It is why psychoanalysis develops after the Industrial Revolution. In our rational, technical age, we have rid ourselves of an external big other, but have replaced him with an even more insistent internal God. The magic power of the commodity is the return of the repressed God in the unconscious. Our belief in it justifies the hustle, the worst kind of treatment of ourselves and other people. We need to rid ourselves of our unconscious God. We need to grasp the insight of religionless Christianity that we see in the contemporary theologians like the later Bonhoeffer, Altizer, and Tillich. The God beyond capitalism is the Hegelian God, the divided God, the religionless God, the God beyond God. All right. Nina, you're up. Okay. Um, so I, I think this is a film in many ways about the dis- disjointed nature of the drive or the disjointed things that the drive pushes people to do. I'm finished, says Daniel Plainview at the end of the film when it is already much too late and far too many things have been severed and sacrificed. The film is replete with half-brothers, half-sons, identical twins, near-misses with words, quails for oil, legs are broken, promises are broken. But there is good mimesis and bad. Mary learns how to sign so she can speak to H.W., copying the gestures of the deaf. But the minds replicate like monstrous robots, tapping into the real like soulless woodpeckers. Blood and oil are both real and malleable. Is H.W. Daniel's real son or merely the bastard prop he uses to elicit sympathy from those he might profit from, as he himself says towards the end, demonstrating Daniel's inability to handle rivals of any kind, whether they be sons or um, competitors. Blood is not thicker than oil in this film. But what is oil here? Daniel moves in the opening silent scenes, relatively silent scenes. The first word is no that is spoken. From silver mining to oil mining, from a hard substance to a liquid one. In an essay entitled Psychoanalysis of the Geography of the Anthropocene, Fantasy, Oil Addiction and the Politics of Global Warming from 2014, the author Stephen Healy writes, If the politics of fantasy that surrounds global warming sustain our oil addiction, we are left with a stark picture. It is an understatement to say that addicts are notoriously difficult to treat. The failed war on drugs and the long-term success rate of all approaches to drug treatment are testament to this. And I wanted to read a kind of longer quote from this essay, and I think he Healy is trying to frame the question of oil addiction in terms of the Western dependence on this particular substance, which may or may not be coming to an end in terms of the replacement with green capitalism, as Helen already mentioned. Um, but certainly we can we can think of mining as a kind of constitutive feature of um, our contemporary reality, whether we're talking about the virtual mining of cryptocurrency or the the oil pipeline story of previous week um, where hackers, uh, you know, ransomed the government. Um, (laughs) um, And yeah, the kind of longer term, deeper question, I suppose, of um, what oil actually is. And lots of people want to imagine that it's a kind of uh, dinosaur uh, sort of liquid dinosaurs, uh, which puts us back in a pre-Christian uh, environment, but also in a pre-lapsarian one, in which uh, capitalism is the extraction, therefore, of something that existed um, before even Christianity. Um, and in this paper by 
by Healy, then there's an attempt to discuss um, a psychoanalytic conception of addiction, which he then um, uh, relates to the, the Western dependence on, on oil. He writes the following, What then does psychoanalysis offer in the way of an, inter an intervention in relation to addiction? The process is complicated by how addicts tend to relate to enjoyment and the ego ideal. They want to enjoy life too much and they expect to be able to do it perfectly. In this sense, addicts are the perfect subjects of the society of enjoyment. Freud famously observed that the point of analysis was to allow for the patient to experience ordinary unhappiness in love and work. For the addict, this is always a step down. According to Luce, who Healy built upon, Lacan's attempt at a general understanding of how patients can assume responsibility for their own desire in the context of a society of enjoyment, has particular implications for the treatment of addicts. We cannot return to a society of prohibition, just saying no doesn't work, so the prelatsarian fantasy of going back to a time before the industrial exploitation of oil is uh, unthinkable, extremely difficult, and Marx would say a similar thing, we can't go back to a, a kind of rural uh, socialist uh, fantasy. It is equally unacceptable, Healy says, to abandon the addict to the tyrannical rule of enjoyment. Lacan's answer lay in recognising that the nomination of desire can represent the, the subject symbolically, it can consolidate their imaginary identity, or it can position them in relation to the real, to the limits of symbolization. It was his conclusion that exposing the addict to the void of the real Real nomination would help the addict to attenuate their belief in an idealised enjoyment, traversing the fantasy that structures addiction, and in so doing enter in re into relation with others and the social bond that implies. And I think some of the implications that Healy talks about um, in relation to addiction to oil would be um, questions that relate to um, degrowth to a kind of ecological um type of responsibility a participatory approach to questions of energy of thinking about the end of the oil age and this relates back to things that Ivan Illich were talking about a long time ago in the early 70s in books like Energy and Equity and the kind of reduction of scale of um, energy consumption um, and so on and you know I think this might seem like a kind of step down itself. And I think one of the problems with a kind of theoretical addiction or an addiction to theory might also be the desire for a kind of permanently exciting response, whether that be a kind of nihilistic one. And we see a lot of left nihilism, the idea that everything is screwed, um, or a kind of, uh, I don't know, sort of fantastical accelerationist um, image, which is very compatible with Silicon Valley and green type, great reset type, you know, images of, ecotopia um and yes i suppose to accept just to finish like in a way that the the sheer um transformation of oil as it has taken place in the last hundred plus years and how foundational that is to the climate in which we we all live in and and in a sense have no choice to participate in that we're all kind of oil subjects whether we like it or not. And I suppose I wonder, you know, what oil really, I suppose, means to to us as subjects to it, involuntary subjects to, to oil and how we can think about it differently. All right, I'm up.
In There Will Be Blood, three different men play fast and loose with the truth to make a buck. Daniel, an oilman, adopts a boy as a prop to make himself more sympathetic in business negotiations. Eli, a preacher, purports to be a faith healer to get donations for his church. Henry pretends to be Daniel's brother to secure employment. Over the course of the film, Daniel proves the most devastating. He cheats Eli out of a promised donation to his church, and he kills Henry when he discovers that Henry's identity is a lie. Daniel raises the boy in dangerous circumstances. An accident takes the boy's hearing, and Daniel abandons the child. But nobody in the film gets by honestly. Each of the three men has a different reason for lying. Daniel admits he just can't stand to see others succeed. He has to be preeminent. Eli lies for his church to support a cause he values. Henry lies merely to get what he needs to survive. In this America, the reason hardly matters. Whether a man values status, God, or getting through the day, it's hard to get what he wants honestly. Everyone is forced to hustle. The thing is, while each man can find a justification for his own hustling, he cannot justify hustling in others. Daniel hates Eli and Henry for doing what he himself does, deceiving other people for money. Daniel says he looks at people and sees nothing worth liking. He can deceive them because he hates them, but he hates them precisely because they are just like him. It's difficult to justify exploitation if you like the people you're exploiting. It's much easier to exploit them if you can come up with a reason to hold them in contempt. Undergraduate students often accuse Thomas Hobbes of having a negative view of people, but Hobbes thought we could live in peace and harmony with each other. For Hobbes, our reason enables us to deal with our fear of death by coming together to form a commonwealth. In some ways, Hobbes' view is utopian. He really believed we were deeply reasonable, that true, lasting peace was attainable for us. Daniel's negative view of people isn't in Hobbes. It's in Montesquieu. It was Montesquieu who argued that virtue could not be found at scale or reliably produced. He argued that states needed to rely on honor rather than virtue, that a competition for honor in a system with the separation of powers would lead to mutual frustration. The nobles who compete for honor in Montesquieu's monarchy enjoy large landed estates. They don't have to compete for the bare essentials of life. Without the landed aristocracy, the competition for honor spills out into every economic class, into every nook and cranny of life. Everyone tries to rise above everyone else in matters great and small. Montesquieu argues for a king to ensure this competition is carried out under fixed and established laws, but without kings, the system of honors has no human anchor point. There's no one to bestow honor in an orderly and predictable way. Instead, honor becomes attached to the accumulation of wealth itself, both to the making of fortunes and to the earning of livings. Unmoored from fixed rules, it becomes harder and harder to distinguish which fortunes and livings are earned legitimately and which are not. The fact of wealth itself begins to suggest the honor that previously would have been socially bestowed. Without virtue to induce people to respect each other, and without a king to regulate rivalry, the only restriction on the struggle for honor is the obstacle of the other, and the other becomes an object of outright hatred. Once mere survival is secured and religion fades away, our only justification for hustling is that it brings honor to the self. Others have the distinct disadvantage of not being ourselves. Our hustle is self-justifying because it is ours. Their hustle is in the way. The other commuters are in the way of our commute. Other writers' books are taking up space on bookshelves that belong to our books. Other people are living in houses that should be ours. And why not? We're so certain most of the people in the other cars are terrible, and most of their books are terrible, and most of them don't deserve to be in those houses, 
they got those things by lying, by pretending to know what they're talking about. Who's to say otherwise? There is no virtue and no sovereignty. The only thing that prevents us from ramming ourselves down everyone's throats are the throngs of other people trying to do the same. The only way out of this way of thinking is to understand ourselves differently, to develop a more ambitious understanding of human beings and their potential. But the longer we stay in this schema, the more real it feels. It becomes harder and harder to believe we could be more than this. Montesquieu argued that in the absence of fixed rules, the system of honor becomes arbitrary. He characterizes this as a kind of despotism. But today we do not face the despotism of the tyrant, of the human ruler who makes flippant choices. Instead, we suffer a kind of impersonal despotism, the despotism of a random and cruel market system, which showers money and honor on the undeserving. You can slay a tyrant, but the faces of totalitarianism are mere mouthpieces. Despising the mouthpieces only reinforces the misanthropy which lies at the heart of this system. To get past it, we have to stop viewing others as obstacles to some project of cathartic self-realization, to overcome the self-other distinction, which we are at every moment encouraged to indulge. You know, that, that something just to pick up, you know, on this idea of the self-other distinction and maybe linking it back to what Nina was saying um, with addiction. Obviously, addiction in, you know, Latin, whatever, is like not speaking, right? Not it, uh, it comes from the root of not in speaking, whatever. Um, but, you know, the thing that is between us is language. The thing that we all share is language. We are creatures of language. We enter into language as we become human subjects. Um, language born out of sort of lack, frustration or whatever. But we, we, we don't sort of learn a language and become humans. We are language and language is the bond that we have. Um, yeah, and it's sort of representative of the, of the fact that there is this sort of connection you know um yeah yeah i mean i think in the essay on addiction you know a subject close to my heart um <laughs> there there is a similar point being made which is the kind of um the idea that there's a kind of self-enclosed relation to a substance right which then exempts you from the social in a certain way or provides you with a way out of being in linguistic relation to to others you know, and, and oil clearly for Daniel, like, plays this role in the film. And then you could extend that out to say, like, Western civilization is therefore, like, dependent on this substance as if, as if it doesn't do any damage to anything else that isn't oil or other countries that aren't engaged in this. And of course, there are many other countries in the Middle East that are also in this relation to oil too. But, um, yeah, I think the idea of a kind of, um, perfect circularity of your, desire with something in the world is you know that excludes others and i think then others become yeah obstacles or rivalrous to this fantasy that you have a a singular and direct relation to something mm -hmm. a substance let's say yeah i think that in a context where it's not clear what is what it's honorable to accumulate and what kind of accumulation is honorable people start looking for that ultimate currency, that, that thing that if you have it, no one can deny that you've been a success and that you're someone to be respected. And I think we, we see it in the fixation on precious metals uh, in some parts of, of the public, people who, whenever there's an economic crisis, go, uh, and there's this moment of real questioning of what, what has value, what is genuinely honorable or worth accumulating, what is legitimate accumulation. There's this rush to gold and silver because they have this cachet of being real in some sense. And I think oil is similar. Uh, yeah, 
States which possess oil are able to exchange it for dollars, and because they're able to exchange it for dollars, they have more policy autonomy than states which don't have oil that they can trade for dollars. Um, oil is one of those substances which is difficult to deny uh, its centrality. And I think that recently there's been an effort because there was this bubble in, in precious metals and commodities after 2008. There's been a search for something which can play this role. And, and since in the last decade, there have been all of these commodities bubbles which have burst. You know, there was a collapse in the price of gold, collapse in the price of oil. These things that people traditionally run to when there's an economic crisis, these things that you know will have value, no longer feel so certain. And into that vacuum has poured cryptocurrencies, cryptocurrencies which are completely arbitrary, that move all over the place, that don't have any of the usual signifiers of it being you know, noble or virtuous or honorable to accumulate. I mean, we read about how even the act of holding cryptocurrency is so enormously costly in energy and so enormously wasteful. Uh, and yet, into the breach of, of uh, commodities having uncertain value, we find cryptocurrencies. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you get the kind of replay of the whole concept of mining, even there, like the virtual mining, and, and even terms that would have been prevalent in the gold rush, like grifter, have returned in the internet age too, to describe someone like, as Benjamin says, that someone you, you in a way, is doing something similar to you, but you don't like them, yeah. you know, and that used to be this very famous definition of the alcoholic was the alcoholic is someone who drinks more than you that you don't like, you know, so it's like someone who's too similar to you. And this is like always in a way that the problem of like uh, societies in general, like the people are too proximate. It's not that people want different things, it's that they want the same thing and they can see that they recognize that desire in the other the narcissism of small differences. Yeah, exactly. Um, relating to the the idea of addiction and inability to speak, you know, obviously we were just talking before we press record about um, things that we have to say, things we can't say, things that we are sort of um, a universe of um, logic that we are sort of forced to inhabit and therefore excluding other ideas. And that's obviously, you know, a form of addiction as well. Um, I was listening to a lecture given by Todd McGowan, he has a great YouTube channel, um, about the fantasy of racism. And his argument, similar to what I was saying with the notion of God and capitalism, that God is unconscious, he sort of argues that um, fantasy, the racism as, a, as an external ideology, when that goes away as a sort of societal ideology, it enters into sort of a fantasy ideological frame unconsciously. And if we are still kind of focused on this sort of capitalist idea of a utopia that we can just get to if only this enemy wasn't in the way. And of course, you know, often the racial other can become this enemy. And I just thought that precisely this addiction in terms of work, addiction of things that can step outside of this racial um, logic is precisely what is racist. You know, often, and I think this is even what Todd said, that, you know, that the colorblindness, quote unquote, is the racist um, logic. But actually, I think it is the absolute obsession with race that is symbolic of the fantasy structure of racism that has gone from an external um, ideological framework, which, you know, was historically real, to an internal fantasy. Um, that the racism is there because of all the things that, you know, you were talking about, Benjamin, in terms of economic and political reasons, you know, um, as the sort of the thing that fills the gap when that uh, those systems aren't working. And because we haven't changed those systems, but we have sort of improved ourselves culturally and got rid of uh, 
you know, the, the external logic ideology of uh, racism that has become a fantastical framework and that the addiction of talking in anything outside of racial terms is precisely a symptom of the internal fantasy. Yeah, yeah, I think that we have gotten ever better at persuading ourselves that we've culturally improved. We, in part because we have found ways to layer and layer and layer bullshit on our, our concepts, you know. In the old days, people were just explicitly racist, right? And then it became unacceptable for your white people to be racist. But if you could get a black person to say the racist thing, then it was fine because they were black, right? So there's this whole generation of writers, I remember, uh, like Walter Williams, who recently died, who would say blatantly racist things, but they were black, and therefore it wasn't meant to be something that you could critique, right? Now, we all see through that. We all see through the Uncle Tom who is just being a mouthpiece for, for racism. And the next layer of it is to have people who profess to be woke and anti-racist, but who nonetheless are propagating elite perspectives laundered through that aesthetic discourse. Uh, and I, Kwame Brown, the basketball player, uh, retired basketball player, has recently pointed this out. Uh, Kwame Brown has been picked on for many years for, for being a bust and failing to live up to his potential. And he's been making these videos where he talks about the go-along, get-along gang, a group of, of uh, black professionals in the media who are being paid to uh, do the same old thing of picking on and ridiculing young black men, but who are doing it under the cover of saying they support Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, yelling Wakanda, uh, going on social media and putting their fist up and saying they're for social justice. The new way to be an Uncle Tom for Kwame Brown is to explicitly say you are the most radical person out there. You're the most radical person in the room. You're the most moral. You care the most. And then when you do the same old things, when you cover events in the same old way, when you act politically in the same old establishment, neoliberal centrist way, all of that can be laundered through that aesthetic display. Uh, and I think that is where racial discourse in the States is going. Now the Uncle Tom is not just someone who is black, who is saying things that you would expect a white person to say. The Uncle Tom is someone who says things that a college-educated person says. The Uncle Tom is someone who actually says, I'm anti-racist, uh, and uses that as a cover for continuing to say the same old things, for continuing to make fun of and pick on you know, someone like Kwame Brown, who came to the NBA straight out of high school and just happened to not play quite as well as people thought he would. Yeah. And, you know, it, it makes me think of um, the addiction of the political. Obviously, there's this totally ideological thing that's like, oh, don't do, don't say this. It's too political. It's too political. And I often think that the thing that precisely we sit, we think of as political is not political. So precisely all of this woke stuff is not political. And the thing that is actually political is never talked about. And in fact, you know, we have, we're talking about, you know, what Nina's saying about mimesis, like everything is the same as everything. And, you know, capitalism has this tendency to homogenize through the illusion of difference. But, um, you know, we, we don't have really politics. I mean, I think I was talking about the Hegelian monarchy, for instance, and uh, Hegel talks a lot about um, societal structures, political structures um, that have this political insight of division, of contradiction baked into them. We don't have, we don't have politics, I don't think. Everything is tied to capital. The British monarchy is tied to capital. The British state is the left or right wing of capital. We don't, we don't have an alternative. And it's, it's funny, I was doing this lecture yesterday and we were talking about 
um, the idea of the enemy in relation to capitalism, the necessary enemy to sustain fantasy or whatever, and that, you know, the enemy is a function of the ideology of promise and that capitalism is this sort of um, system of the ideology of promise. And a uh, question was asked, can we not just make capitalism the enemy? And it's like, well, no, precisely not, because if we do that, it, it, capitalism isn't like an external thing. It's a, as well as many other things, a libidinal structure. So what would happen if we make it the enemy? Well, it's like, well, that's an enemy that we can target to get rid of to something beyond capitalism in a utopia. And therefore, capitalism would sell us a product back to us or a set of things that we have to do to get to that place, including, for instance, something like, you know, what would happen is we'd have the Amazon workers in a warehouse who aren't allowed to go to the toilet being called comrade by their superiors, for instance, you know, like that's what would happen if we say like capitalism, you know, I'm an hashtag anti-capitalist rather than considering it as operating on a political level, not this, you know, for me, the political insight is contradiction, contradictory subjectivity, you know, the capitalism is the emergent of that kind of broken subjectivity. And if we just see it as this thing to overcome, the same thing's going to happen and we're just going to be hashtag comrade or whatever. Yeah, it's funny just thinking at the level of um, associative language, like, you know, growing up in the 90s, you know, the Amazon rainforest was this obsession and we all had to do like musicals about the Amazon rainforest and everyone wanted to save the Amazon rainforest. And of course, I'm not denying that this was a worthy cause or that there was a, you know, there's there was a problem with or there still is with, you know, the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest. But then I was just thinking about the just weird, uncanny echo of the virtualization of all of these words so the amazon rainforest becomes amazon the you know the whatever it is multi i don't know multi-planetary uh you know thing provider um and so many words like this you know like sky becomes sky television sun becomes sun newspaper um you know the cloud is not clouds in the sky it's the the virtual cloud in which you keep your things and i i suppose this you know complete repetition but virtualization of things and i was just thinking about the etymology of oil itself and you know before oil was discovered oil just meant olive oil and it comes from the word like for olive and you know again this this temptation to imagine a world a you know like a pre-oil world or pre pre-industrial or pre-capitalist world and something like deadwood i think that hbo's series was an amazing um attempt to look at the foundation the the kind of violent um uh founding of capital or you know in the west in america and that you know how how it takes root and some of the other things we've looked at i suppose like the um um some of the westerns um also you know do this and how you have to foreclose the violence in order to establish a system that is itself violent but pretends not to be and I suppose I'm thinking about this at the level of discourse then. What does it mean to foreclose all of these words in relation to their real, let's say, psychotic dimension, which is to say the desire to, you know, have a direct relation to to things, um, to, to the real. And, you know, but to be instead confronted with their, their mimetic shadow all the time, you know, all of these natural words become completely virtualized. Yeah, all of these words become endlessly bendable. And, and I think it... I find that it surprises a lot of people who are non-theorists or don't have a kind of theoretical background because when you're, you know, when you're a kid and you're in school and you take a test in the States, it's all about definitions. The, you know, the textbook has definitions and you're asked what they are and you tell people what they are and then you get the right answer. 
And terms just aren't like this. They are endlessly, endlessly fungible, especially if you have the power to make them fungible and to change what they mean. Uh, you know, and, and aesthetics are such a convenient way of doing this. You think about how if um, a left-wing government in Brazil or Bolivia burns down a rainforest, it's to eliminate poverty. If a right-wing government does it, it's because they're evil fascists. Uh, and it's just, you know, how different really are these different developing country governments? They're all trying to develop the economy of the country. They're all trying to raise the standard of living in the country. They're doing it under different aesthetics. They're doing it with different language. But if you're a developing country, you're in this situation of trying to economically develop a state. And that's a technical problem. And you can paint over it in lots of different colors, but all of these governments are in the same situation facing the same problem with the same constraints. You know that there's this sort of like um viral you know thing goes viral often a sort of thread that people respond to on Twitter that actually has I think some kind of insight into this in terms of what you're saying, Benjamin, about like what's trashy if you're poor and like really shishi if you're rich. And I saw somebody say recently sustainability, you know, <laughs> for instance. But it's the same thing that like if one person does it, you know, obviously um if Trump says something that happens to be true it's not listened to, but then you know, of course, if it's if it's uh, um, said by you know the Democrats, then that's totally accepted. Um, but yeah, it's uh, there's also just picking up on what you were saying, you know, about like these products. Obviously, Apple, you know, has that kind of um, Garden of Eden connotation, and this, as you say, this like return to oneness. You know, that you you take the you eat the apple and you you think it's going to be heaven, but it's actually hell. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's very interesting that Apple's logo is the bitten apple. I mean it is it's literally the the apple from the tree of knowledge. It's not a complete apple. It's the bitten apple. That's so hilarious. You know, and we, <laughs> but we we live under the sign of of this moment. I mean mm -hmm. it's literally the sign of of God's lie and of human shame actually. Like the inauguration of shame. And all of our words are on these machines of shame. You know, it's funny, like that that story though, is it <laughs> I can't remember my like primary school, Ari. So they are in heaven, right, but they're not allowed to eat the apple. And when they eat the apple They're in the garden. They're in the garden, oh, right, they're in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. And then by eating the apple, they enter into the world. Is that right? So God says if you eat this the fruit from the tree of knowledge, you will surely die. And the snake says to Eve, and the snake, whatever the snake represents, is a matter of um, great, great theological dispute, as, as are all of these <laughs> things, of course, right? But, I mean, you know, at base level, the snake convinces Eve that God is lying. And indeed, God is lying because they don't die. Well, they die in a certain sense, but they don't die in the physical sense. So the moment Eve um, eats the apple and then she convinces Adam to eat it too, and then they... They yeah they they enter into shame so hence the fig leaves so they're suddenly aware of their nakedness whereas before they're in uh, harmony let's say with the anim with nature and so the kind of original split then becomes uh, you know in the first place actually it's very psychoanalytic because Adam then is told to name the animals right so <laughs> no he does that before <laughs> but Adam is given the power of dominion uh -huh. in terms of nomination right. But then the, the sort of split between the, the non-human animals and the human animal becomes visible to them and they're ashamed of their nakedness. And so shame is one of this, you know, the most important things um, in this story. 
I don't know. There's lots of other aspects, but <laughs> but but yeah, the shame is interesting though, like because obviously we are encouraged to be shameful in this highly highly moralistic times. But obviously, there's a hugely shameless dimension to our system, and particularly, you know, the hustle is entirely shameless. Yeah, because we're supposed to be shameful because we have inherited this kind of Montesquieu modern political theory, which says uh, that we we aren't going to rank ourselves by virtue, we're going to rank ourselves by honor, right? Well, honor is just whatever it is that people praise and celebrate. Honor isn't anchored to anything unless some kind of political force purposefully anchors it to something. And because we no longer think it's acceptable for the state to decide what is to be celebrated and what not, we have this honor system, which is unanchored to anything. And so how can we have any kind of delimited sense of shame? Because we don't know what is shameful and what isn't, uh, we behave in a shameless way while intermediate, uh, intermittently feeling shame whenever our culture tells us to about whatever it is that everyone is, is fixated on as a possible thing that maybe we should be ashamed of right now. So we have no consistency to what ought to be shameful, and therefore how can we be anything other than shameless? Yeah, I mean, a few years ago I was looking at the difference between shame and guilt and this is quite an important distinction. You know, if if you have the sentence, how could I have done that? Then guilt would be, how could I have done that? With the emphasis on the action and shame would be, how could I have done that? Right. So that one attaches to feeling attaches more to one's sense of self in a perhaps deeper way. Um, that one feels that one is like irreparably, um, damaged. Um, fundamentally, whereas guilt is perhaps more the feeling that relates to a particular act or action that one then one can perhaps make amends for or se- can separate oneself from by saying, okay, I wouldn't normally do that or I'm not that kind of person or whatever, right? It, accurately or inaccurately. Um, but it does strike me that the, the men I've known who, who have, um, committed suicide have all experienced a deep sense of shame, you know, at their, the very being, you know, wrongly, of course, right? But in a sense, they they couldn't separate out them, their their con- sort of continued existence from this deep feeling of shame that they had something to be ashamed of in terms of who they were. Um, and yeah, I wonder. There's a kind of externalizing shame, which is that you must feel bad about X, or now we are supposed to feel, you know, bad about this particular social wrong. Um, but shame ultimately, I think, is completely individuating. Like it, it separates you from, you know, from other people so profoundly. Um, so I suppose in the Garden of Eden story, you know, it's shame that separates them, Adam and Eve, from the rest of the animals, from from the from paradise. I suppose you know that they they know they now they now know the difference between good and evil. But in a way, this is what what did. What did they gain from this, <laughs> from this knowledge? Yeah, and I suppose you know, in a in a democracy, in some kind of state which is run on honor and with some kind of code, some kind of explicit thing, you know, these these men who feel this shame and who uh, commit suicide would have some kind of of means of making amends that would be formalized. They would know precisely what their transgression was because there would be some kind of set of rules for it. But in a society where what becomes shameful becomes shameful all of the sudden. Stuff that was previously completely fine and normal suddenly turns into the basis for 
heavily, heavily shaming people to the point where they can't have a job, can't be part of society. In that kind of case, there's no way of predicting what will be an action which will cause you to feel shame. And there's no way of alleviating that shame uh, unless the society happens to move on. And we have all of this, all of this talk, all of this time of, of uh, you know, comments or jokes or behavior aging badly. You know, it just turns into something different subsequently, and you have no control over it. Uh, and the context in which you originally said it doesn't matter and doesn't affect the way that you are summarily judged during one of these moments of extraordinary, uh, extraordinary shaming. Yeah, it, it's, I think this really devastates people because when these cultural norms change very rapidly, a lot of people get caught in the crossfire of them. And if you are someone who actually cares about your reputation and who, uh, and for many people, you have to care because it's tied to your employment and to your ability to make a living and put food on the table, uh, this, this is something that can just ruin your life all of a sudden at any point. And it's this ever-shifting sands and instability that is so, um, you know, conducive to capitalism, obviously. Um the, the precariousness, I think this is precisely why at the moment there is this um, tendency to have to have the world reflect oneself because everything else is, you know, um, we have, we see enemies everywhere. We have our singular vision. We have to hear what we think and we want. And there are enemies everywhere precisely because in every direction, everything is ever, ever shifting. Everything is capitalized upon. The, the, the term that I absolutely hate is um, the right side of history. You know, like the, the Obama thing, he's not going to be on the right side of history. It's like, A, we cannot predict the future. This is, to be human is to know, not know what, what is going to happen. Obviously, we can see trends and we can reflect on things, but we absolutely do not know what's coming. And it is absolutely insane this we're basically not only does it make us completely precarious in the present of like shit what's the right thing to say now but this right side of history as well it we have our past where things can be dug up and things can have aged badly so we have to be worried about that we have our present what's the you know wrong thing to say now and then the future is also precarious on this sort of like opinion uh ideology sort of front it's horrible yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on this point. I've, I've thought about this phrase a lot and the people who use it, currently use it, um, you know, and the right side of history. I mean, also the, I mean, the kind of arrogance of anyone to, to, you know, uh, to, uh, think that they embody this position in the ways that you say, um, not least because we don't know. Um, but also it's, I think, indicative of, the kind of person who can't actually admit that they've made a mistake or can't actually ever admit that they were wrong about something or can't publicly change their mind. So it's a kind of um, extremely sort of narcissistic statement to make because in a way it's kind of compelling a certain Im fantasy of reality to which everyone who doesn't agree is somehow you know, incorrect or, you know, clearly wrong or reactionary or backward or, you know, even hateful or whatever, um, because they're not going along with whatever this person says is the right side of history. But it's also, I think, um, an absolute trap for the people who use it, because I, I think that the inability to admit that one has made mistakes or that one has changed your mind or that you've been wrong about something or that you've gone down a kind of a, like a wrong path of thought and you need to kind of step back you know, is 
is the mark individually and collectively of a humility which is completely absent most of the time um, and badly needs to be brought back into the culture somehow. And you, and you know, this is the thing, you know, I think I was talking about like the Jewish God, the external God, that as long as we do some, or like not we, I'm not Jewish, but like one enacts some sort of weird rituals, then you leave God in peace. But this sort of tyranny Oh, you know this this idea of we can predict the future is highly religious. Again, it, it it says that there is a wholeness without untouched by contradiction and contingency that exists out there that we're going towards. It's highly religious, and we have, as you've said many times, in you know, like no way to quell this god. At least you know the ancient you know Jewish tradition has some way of we do this on a certain day, whatever we can we can keep that voice quiet, and then obviously um, Christianity deals with it slightly different and uh, differently in various religions too. But like. This, this, we we live in highly religious times. We have no way of, um, except for very, very, very slyly touching on exactly the right things at the right time, which is a hustle, right? Yeah, because the hustler is go along to get along. The hustler will go along with whatever it is that makes money so that they can get along. And if they accumulate enough money, then they have what, what they say, uh, what they call fuck you money. Or in the words of, of Kanye West, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, was you saying something? Uh-uh, you can't tell me nothing. Wait till I get my money right, then you can't tell me nothing, right? Because the, the currency, the oil or the money or whatever it is, is the, the, uh, the thing that everyone recognizes is valuable, uh, becomes itself a justification of whatever means was used to pursue it. Because th- there's no way of, of delineating. Apart from the fact of, well, I got it. Somehow I got it. Somehow I ended up with it. And this is, you know, it, it, prosperity preaching, prosperity gospel. But you know, the, the trauma of getting that money is twofold. First of all, you were revealed, the, the impotence of the money is revealed because beyond a certain point of just sustenance, money is not transcendently powerful. And when you're confronted with the fantasy, well, it's highly traumatic and then you become melancholic, which is a form of, sort of psychosis, really. But secondly, the trauma of being the picked one who has happened to accidentally get the money, because it is totally effing by accident in, in many ways. At least historical periods, there was an accident of birth, you know, which is justified by God. But now we have the accident of achievement, um, which is justified by some kind of God, but not an external God. And it's highly traumatic. And there was a thing, um, sort of a meme going around, I think, four or five years ago about um, woke celebrities. And the sort of the theory was that it's a survivor's guilt. You know, it's the trauma of being confronted with being the one who um, has been elevated to the level of saint via some ordainment from, you know, some spiritual phenomenon uh, that you have to then, like, in the old ways, like, flagellate and get the God out of you or get the demon out. You know, the way that um, Hegel taught has a, a passage about this, a section about this in the Phenomenology of Spirit, like, where one becomes religious and how one tries to relate to God, you know, by by sort of unburdening yourself of that too muchness in a self-flagellation of, I'm saying the right thing, I'm highly woke, isn't this awful, imaginable people, you know. 
Whereas, yeah, if you look at Bataille on the sovereign and, and the idea of potlatch and the kind of excessive, you know, the understanding of an economy of excess, the point would be to, to get rid of the surplus and like to, you know, in a like preferably a kind of like demented festival that everyone could enjoy. And in a way, the burden is on the, the, the sovereign, you know, who can at any time be killed also, um, or that, you know, the powerful one and the one with all the stuff is, is in a way the burden is to get rid of the excess, right? So you're right that people do it in terms of language and woke and and adherence to this other like um plane of i don't know whatever we would call it virtual reality um but what they should be doing is put on massive free parties like if you're a celebrity basically the, the way to deal with that kind of um your the position you're put in would be to let's say i think if you're a billionaire buy up loads of property and turn and just manage get someone to manage them as homeless shelters or i don't know put on huge free festivals somewhere for for hundreds of people or thousands of people you know to in order to kind of and that's not that's not philanthropy right which would would, would have been the previous moral solution to the problem which would have been like i can give back and you know or be a patron or whatever i'd give to charity the kind of victorian solutions but really like a fully a full embrace of the solar like excess of of everything it's just you just happen to be the person who has too much stuff and that your your only job is to to get rid of it you know, uh, Kwame Brown made a similar kind of point, saying, what are these people doing talking about all of this stuff when they don't go into their own communities and do anything with their wealth to help or benefit anybody? Uh, it's all uh, just a way of, of justifying the accumulation and laundering that accumulation. You know, that's that's what because there are kind of people at different levels of this. There are the people who are still in the act of trying to make it, who are using this to kind of wander the fact that they're just hustling. They're just trying to make it. And then there are the people who have made it, who are genuinely part of the elite, you know, the, the millionaires and then the billionaires. Uh, and I think that one of the things that I've, I've been thinking about is at most points in human history, most of the political ideas that we've had have been the ideas of the elite, because for the most part, only the elite can really speak or be heard. And the ordinary people are excluded from the discourse. And I think that one of the things that has been happening is that as inequality has increased and as uh, the universities have turned into job training institutions, there has been a collapse in the ability of the ordinary person to actually participate. And increasingly, the discourse that we have is not interested in the ordinary person, their circumstances, their life, Right. So what we have is a political discourse, if we can call it political, that is entirely about the ruling class working out its various neuroses, various feelings of guilt and shame, uh, you know, and trying to one up each other and dunk on each other, because the main threat to someone in our ruling class is other people in our ruling class. The main way that you can compete with someone if your elites engaged in this competitive game is by leveraging these discourses to damage their reputation. And for the most part, it's other elites who do that. It's other elites who do the canceling. An ordinary person doesn't have a kind of platform to facilitate that. And the ordinary person would be afraid of being hit by reprisal or sued or something, right? And so what we've got is, is I think the thing that has been frustrating me for years now is that this discourse is just radically disinterested in what it would actually mean to help anybody who needs help. And not only is it radically disinterested in that, but if you try to raise the possibility of helping people, uh, this discourse finds ways to accuse you of being a problem and to try to cancel you or marginalize you. Even if, to just introduce in the United States any kind of class language, they call you a class reductionist, 
they marginalize what you're saying. They accuse you of being maybe possibly secretly racist or right-wing sympathetic just for raising you know, class language. Uh, and so what we have here is, is an elite discourse that has become so effective in large part because it has draped itself in the language of being a popular mass discourse. It pretends to be mass culture and popular culture. And what it does is it goes out and it finds people who have charisma with the ordinary person, who the ordinary person likes or finds funny or finds interesting. And it uses those people in their aesthetics and it purchases them, purchases those aesthetics, and then uses that to clothe the same old elite ideas, which are only about uh, benefiting the elite and enabling the elite to work out its own internal competitive games. You know, people argue that history is the history of class conflict, but most of history is the history of intra-elite conflict, only occasionally interrupted by, work, by the working class or the peasantry in, in these moments of, of strange fortune. No, absolutely. And the thing is, like, a few, there are a few things that this makes me think of. Like, first of all, like, of course, as you say, you know, when people say it's a cultural war, it's not a cultural war, it's a class war, but it's an intra-class war. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no other, <laughs> you know, there's no class other. You know, I think the Labour Party is a prime example using the, the term Labour now. And it's like, I just don't see where this Labour word really has anywhere to, to, to associate with, of course, you know, with, 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 um, automation and the fact that more and more people are being proletarianized well yes people who work tend to be often elite now so maybe maybe that's why you know that labor word could could stay um this is something that we find immensely annoying in the media field where we're often told you know that the work the stuff we talk about is not applicable to you know large space of people it's not popular it's too philosophical whatever and i'm like no it's the precise opposite this stuff is it, the, the stuff that is the mainstream now that has dominated the mainstream precisely because it's to do with um being beyond reproach or trying to show that you're beyond reproach it seems like that's the only token now the only thing is just to show that this this organization this group is beyond reproach through media you know it precisely is unpopular it precisely does not speak to people and actually which is Great, because we can, we talked about, I think, um, Adam Curtis, that, you know, the fact that he, this is sort of seen as the great intellectual mode of filmmaking, that there's actually way more stuff being made that's great, way more out there. And that actually, I think normal people are more, much more interested in, in that and good stuff than, than this sort of, um, as you say, like working out of neuroses that is only to do with a small group of people. Yeah. So it looks like we're at about an hour guys so let's wrap up this episode thank you guys so much for listening please please come and join us for the b-side on our patreon and have a really really terrific rest of the day bye bye bye